Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akishrafi. Today is October 31, 2023, and I'm speaking with Daniel Vander Summers. He's the author of Entangled Encounters at the National Zoo, Stories from the Animal Archive, published by the University Press of Kansas. Thank you for joining us, Dan. It's wonderful being here. Dan, when Americans were debating establishing a national zoo in the 1880s, they talked about monkeys and other animals the zoo would hold, about the pros and cons of the federal government establishing a zoo, and about having a zoo at all. But as you relate, these debates weren't narrowly about these topics. What were the broader issues at stake? So the National Zoo, it was a unique zoo in American history. Most zoos at the time in the 1870s through the first decades of the 20th century were locally funded, paid for by local institutions or local tax dollars. But the National Zoological Park in Washington, D.C. was unique in that it was funded with federal tax dollars, making it kind of a branch or arm of the United States government. Decisions made for and with National Zoo were made by the United States Congress. So this positioned the zoo into the public mentality in a way other zoos weren't. After the American Civil War in the 1880s, in a country that's still racked by a lingering reconstruction, uh, there was a large contingent of Southern Democrats, especially from the Deep South, who saw the zoo as an overreach of the federal government as a symbol of the ever-expanding state. As a symbol then, when Congress was debating the merits of the zoo, the zoo came to embody the frustrations and grievances of a lingering civil war. Um, In this way, the National Zoo became an explosive topic in the House of Representatives specifically because zoo animals gave Southern Democrats, especially from the Deep South, a voice to still argue about the Reconstruction and about the Civil War. Zoo animals gave these representatives the way to talk about sectional politics, North-South politics, and issues of race in a coded fashion. This caused the National Zoo and the House of Representatives to be debated for a very long time and uh, created a cultural moment where representatives uh, yell at each other about sectional politics. You describe how the National Zoo and other zoos held collections of specimens for observation and study, served as venues for communicating public science, and offered entertainment. Can you share an example of how these roles developed at the National Zoo? Absolutely. The stories of my book dance around observation, public science, and entertainment. Uh, These three ventures are, are separate in some ways, but in other ways they're always entangled to give one example of each. One story from my book is focused on Samuel Langley, who was the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. He's currently the name at the Air Force Base in in D.C. He used the National Zoo as a place of observation and study. He used the zoo as a place to photograph soaring birds as diverse from eagles to vultures. And his goal was to study uh, birds as vehicles of flight because he was passionate about developing flying machines and doing theoretical work in aeronautics and aeronautical science. So he used the zoo as a place, as a a staging ground of sorts, to study the flight of soaring birds. He um, 
rightly thought that if humans were to successfully fly, that perhaps they should turn to animals that already have been flying for millennia. So he um, photographed birds in the zoo, and he not only was interested in the flight of birds in the air, but also the flight of birds in cages, in environments where they had less space to uh, run into flights. So he was particularly interested in the vultures. Um, Around his studies, he wrote on aeronautics and aeronautical theory, um, as well as the mathematics that undergird this science. Around the zoo, he also simultaneously was assembling flying machines that tried to mimic or recreate the structure of soaring birds. Um, I view Samuel Langley in my book as an early example of biomimetics, where science and scientists will turn to the natural world to answer pressing questions uh, for humanity. Samuel Langley turned to birds in order to answer questions about flight. So that's just one story about observation, thinking about public science. In some ways, the entire book and all of its stories is about science in the public sphere. But one emblem of public science um, in my book is the story about Richard Garner. He is a Virginian a tree peddler who was very interested in uh, kind of popular science. Talking to animals was a big theme of kind of developing science fiction and literature um, in the 19th century. So he dreamed of being able to talk to primates. Uh, Richard Garner turned to the zoo in the 1890s to record uh, chimpanzee language in the zoo. So he took new photographs that were being developed across the 19th century, recorded chimpanzee voices, and then would play those recordings to other chimpanzees with the hopes of discerning some sort of structure to uh, be able to understand the, the language of chimpanzees. These playback experiments became a very Uh, popular across the United States. Uh, Richard Garner covered headlines uh, for multiple years in the 1890s as he staged these high-profile experiments in the zoo. In some ways, these experiments were more about drawing the crowds to the zoo than they even were about the science themselves. For Richard Garner, what he started in the zoo with chimpanzees and other primates, he eventually exported to the Gabon River in Africa in the French Congo where he would conduct playback experiments in the wild. Richard Garner was a controversial figure. Uh, Many primatologists, linguists, and anthropologists at the time labeled him a fraud. They called into question much of his research. Indeed, it appears that um, many of his conclusions were fabricated and were highly problematic, also infused with all sorts of racialist ideologies of the 19th century. Um, In the public mind, though, Richard Garner was an individual who sought to speak to animals to understand um, animals more. He made claims that humans and primates were closer together than most uh, Americans thought. So he kind of took on a life of his own in the world of public science. So those stories were really devoted to public science um, regarding the last of the three, entertainment. Again, most of the stories in my book are focused on zoo entertainment. But one kind of symbol of entertainment in the book would be two individuals, Dunk and Gold Dust, who were circus elephants that were donated to the zoo very early on in the zoo's history. Um, I view these two um, individuals as really embodying a tragic history of the zoo. It took a very long time for the National Zoo to build a 
house, an elephant house, or even a large enclosure for Duncan Goldust. For the better part of a decade, these two individual uh, elephants were uh, chained to a stake in an enclosure and lived most of their lives in the zoo, um, walking in as a circle, uh, perhaps as large as 10 feet in diameter, perhaps as small as, as eight. Duncan Goldust symbolized the uh, entertainment in the zoo. They were important for selling tickets in the early years of the zoo's existence. Um, selling tickets is always an important endeavor in zoo history. Getting people through the door, selling tickets, enabled zoos to pay for the expenses of keeping animals in captivity. Uh, zoos today sell hundreds of millions of tickets each year. So this kind of entertainment function of the zoo is still something that's very present. After 11 years, uh, Dunk eventually uh, had his own elephant house established in the zoo with a, a large enclosure and yard to, to roam through. Um, of course, this enclosure doesn't come close to mimicking what elephants' ranges are in nature. After de a decade, uh, the conditions did improve in the National Zoo. Uh, so Duncan Goldust would be my, my story for entertainment. One of the cases you study is that of understanding and preventing the spread of tuberculosis in zoos. This knowledge was transferred to human habitats as embodied in William Evans, who moved from being the pathologist at the Lincoln Park Zoo to being the public health commissioner in Chicago. And then this history disappeared from public record. How did this happen, and what does it tell us about the history of zoos? Uh, William Evans was maybe one of the most important individuals in American history regarding uh, understanding tuberculosis as an airborne pathogen, and especially regarding creating public health protocols for dealing with tuberculosis, which at his time in the first decade of the 20th century was the number one killer of human beings in the United States. William Evans was a pathologist of the Lincoln Park Zoo. I just loved discovering his story in and around this zoo. Uh, he looked at the primate house of the Lincoln Park Zoo to argue uh, that tuberculosis was primarily an airborne pathogen. Uh, most Americans thought at the beginning of the 20th century that tuberculosis was primarily passed through sputum, through the, the spit of humans and animals. So, for example, uh, Americans carried spittoons with them and always had um, handkerchiefs to to spit in because it was feared that sputum was a vector for the Great White Plague, what was termed the epidemic of, of tuberculosis. Uh, William Evans, though, looked at the primate house, uh, a institution within the Lincoln Park Zoo that had just enormous death rates uh, from tuberculosis, and realized that if the monkeys in the primate house were put outside instead of indoors, that the rates of tuberculosis just plummeted. After staging an experiment in the zoo, he proved indisputably that it was the enclosed air of the primate house that passed tuberculosis. Um, so that story in and of itself was exciting. I, I loved finding this uh, story. But amazingly, William Evans took what he learned in the zoo to the city of Chicago as a public health commissioner, and he transformed public health protocols for one of the largest cities in the United States. He encouraged uh, students in schools, just like the monkeys in the zoo, to learn outdoors. He pushed for what was called tempered air ventilation or blast radiation, where air would be sucked in from the outside into a room, circulated quickly in an interior of a building, and then expelled quickly to create a sort of circulatory system indoors. 
All of these protocols and this knowledge on tuberculosis he developed in the zoo. But what just was amazing was the zoo was erased entirely from not only his own biography, but even medical records of tuberculosis, which at the time were quite voluminous and are still preserved into archives. So I guess the question is, uh, why did the zoo vanish from William Evans's story and from the story of tuberculosis? I, I believe for a few reasons. One, uh, the zoo was linked as a symbol of amusement, a place for the masses. There was a negative connotation for entertainment in the early 20th century. So perhaps William Evans, uh, an esteemed doctor, wanted to subtly erase this zoo background for his knowledge. Um, secondly, narrating the zoo into his professional career might have been problematic as well. Um, he was trained as a doctor in Mississippi. He was highly involved in every medical institution in Chicago and greater parts of Illinois. And perhaps placing the zoo into this kind of professional um, narrative didn't make sense for someone who was trying to work up the ladder in medicine. He eventually was a, a very esteemed professor at Northwestern. But the third reason, a broader reason, is that often animals are and have been erased from narratives of, of science and medicine and technology. So leaving the monkeys of the Lincoln Park Zoo out of a story about conquering tuberculosis in um, a human city would have just been status quo. I guess lastly, though, perhaps the story of the Lincoln Park Zoo was erased because of zoo records themselves. Medical institutions create institutionalized methods for preserving records across time. And zoos as an institution that is seen and located as a, in the city um, don't have the same sort of processes of keeping the records. And zoos that have kept their records kept them in places that were literally separate from the archives of science, medicine, technology. So part of this is about the zoo as an institution um, itself. Uh, the larger kind of uh, story of William Evans is focused about how knowledge is, in, is assembled in general and makes the case that oftentimes the conclusions that science, technology, and medicine comes up with often erases the story of how those conclusions are assembled on the ground in the zoo. You describe zoos as tentacular institutions, as in tentacles, and wild cultural entities. What do you mean by these phrases, and how does your method of telling stories in the book illuminate the significance of zoos in American cultural history? Yeah, so tentacular institutions, this term tentacular, I borrow from Donna Haraway, a, a very famous animal studies scholar. By referring to the zoo as a tentacular institution, I argue across the book that the zoological park is not a single institution that's fully intact. I urge readers to view the zoo as many different institutions that just happen to reside in the same space. Thinking of the zoo as a tentacular institution, I argue that the zoo reaches in many directions simultaneously. Histories and stories in the zoo don't stop at the barbed wire fences that surround that space. So also thinking about tentacles, um, just like an octopus to kind of to uh, reach into an animal metaphor, um, octopus's tentacles can solve different problems simultaneously. So one tentacle can uh, problem solve for one 
issue while another tentacle is doing something else entirely. Um, I like this way of thinking about institutions because the way in which the zoo reached into histories of print media um, had its own separate sort of logic than the way the zoo reached into uh, laboratory spaces at the exact same moment. So the zoo reaches in many directions at once. I urge readers to think about kind of the multiple institutions in a single space so that they can see how the zoo uh, is a history of women activists in the early 20th century, while at the same time, they viewed the zoo as a diplomatic symbol, receiving gifts from princes and kings from around the world, while at the same time viewing the zoo as a space where cowboys are trying to capture bighorn sheep in the Rocky Mountains, or a space where the famous Admiral Dewey's dog ends up in print media about a Supreme Court case, or a space where the term animal rights begins for the first time being used in surprising ways. Um, the zoo is a place that has arguments about the noises that seals make. At the same time, it's a place that deals with public health policy. Uh, the zoo reaches in many directions at once, and we can really only see these directions if we uh, expand the zoo as an institution. It's many places, all intersecting and all entangled. Do you want to say something about a wild cultural entity? Yeah, so when I use wild culture, cultural entity, I am being a little bit ironic using terms like wild that are often take on their own um, symbolic life in Western culture. What I mean by wild cultural entity is that when we uh, view an institution that's many institutions, but we think it's a single institution, that they will have impacts on arenas of public life that we don't expect. We often are trained to view as the zoo as one place, but in reality, it's many. When I use the word wild, I, I mean that it takes on these kind of unexpected, unscripted, unnarrated kind of cultural lives in surprising arenas. The subtitle of your book is Stories from the Animal Archive. Can you talk about how you use sources in this book and why the animal archive is important to how you've written this book? So the sources from this book um, represent really over 100,000 letters and pieces of correspondence, uh, diaries, zookeeper notes, medical records, uh, complaints written to the zoo that were all preserved by the Smithsonian since the National Zoo was a, a part of this institution. In terms of thinking about the zoo as an animal archive, I found in my sources, no matter what type of source I was looking at, whether they were notes about tuberculosis or they were print media about runaway bears, that when you uh, look at any of these sources closely, the lives of individual animals were kind of hidden uh, behind and beneath the assumptions of the authors of these sources. I make the case across my book that um, all archives are animal archives and all sources have the tracks of animals on them. If you uh, read closely enough, if you read patiently enough, and if you look behind uh, the assumptions, with which those sources were created. You conclude your book by observing that zoos continue to hold animals today for the purposes of research, education, conservation, and amusement. But you say they're successful when they stage their own withdrawal. Can you explain that? And can you tell us how you imagine or hope zoos will develop now into the future? I use the term staging their own withdrawals, drawing on the scholarship of uh, philosopher Matthew Shirulu, 
who wrote an amazing article or book chapter rather titled Saving the Golden Lion Tamarind. Uh, today in the 21st century, zoos are symbols of conservation and preservation, especially regarding the reintroduction of animals um, into the wild. However, reintroductions are quite difficult for zoos to achieve success in. Um, somewhere around 93% of all reintroduction programs around the world end in failure. And the reason is because captive animals are simply not wild animals. And zoos have captive animals and have had captive animals bred in captivity for decades. So the zoo faces a particular difficulty trying to take their animals, encouraging them to uh, live in the wild. Uh, Golden lion tamarinds were one success story, however. Matthew Shrulu documents that the reintroduction of golden lion tamarinds did not occur because of the pre-release enrichment programs that uh, zoos uh, staged, but rather occurred when zoos exported their zoo biology into wild spaces in Brazil um, in post-release uh, exercises where zoo biologists and teams of conservationists uh, worked with golden lion tamarinds in the wild ex situ, uh, would uh, manage in fits and starts, who would learn by trial by error and exercise a science of care to create a self-sustaining population of golden lion tamarinds that first began um, in zoos. In this particular case, the zoo achieve success by withdrawing from what they embodied in previous histories. There's a bit of an irony with this. Uh, when we think about zoo achieving success by undoing what the zoo had done, to answer the larger question, how do I imagine or hope zoos will develop into the future? First, I hope that zoos move away from conventions of display that go back to the 18th century. I hope that zoos make consuming animals less of a priority, seeing as many animals as possible. I can't tell you how many times in the zoo I hear someone say something like, um, we did the cheetahs, now we're going to do the gorillas. And kind of the goal is to see as much of the world as fast as you can, like you're just flipping through animals um, so that you can leave the zoo saying, I've seen them all. I just wish that uh, both zoos and zoo goers have let that reside in the past. I also um, would love to see zoos move away from old symbols linked to colonialism, to empire, to discourses of domination, to discourses of mastery, and create new symbols of things that are more inspiring, more ecological. I suppose second, I would love to see zoos create new scripts. Like, for example, how could zoos display fewer species? Can zoos celebrate plant life as much as animal life? How can zoos create displays that are more ecological, both on the ground and symbolically. Can zoos, for example, educate about human displays, which were nearly universal across um, zoo history. Tens of thousands of humans were displayed in zoos, and very few zoos ever acknowledge, let alone educate about these histories of, of race and racism. I guess third, I would love to see zoos uh, relinquish breeding programs for animals only meant for the purpose of display. Most animal zoos are bred in zoos and have been bred in zoos for at least five decades now. 
Um, and most of these animals can never be reintroduced into the wild. So I would love to see zoos halt the breeding of animals that are linked only for consumption. Finally, to add a fourth one, um, I would love to see zoos fully and truly, deeply be places of preservation um, and education, first and foremost, and not places of consumption where people consume animals, where people consume Budweiser's and gifts, where large contracts with corporations are let go and instead ends for conservation and preservation are centered. Thank you, Dan, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. It's a really rich book full of insights about animal history and zoos, but also about history and about writing. Thank you, Bobak, for having me. This was wonderful. Dan Vandersommer's book is Entangled Encounters at the National Zoo, Stories from the Animal Archive, published by the University Press of Kansas. You can find more resources for exploring this topic as well as others at www.chstm.org. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine.